0: Well, not this last week, but a couple of weeks ago, I had the, the opportunity to go and visit, uh, not for the first time, but to go and visit again the uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. And well, I was reminded of this old story that is told uh, about an old man that went to visit a building site. And he, when he arrived there, he approached the uh, worker and he asked him, What is it that that you are doing? And the worker looked at him, puzzled, and he said, Well, can't you see I'm laying bricks? Then this man moved a few steps forward, and there was another worker there. And he asked him exactly the same question. Well, my fellow, what is it that you're doing? And that man looked at him, and he said, Well, I'm laying bricks, I'm building a wall. Unhappy with the responses that he received, he moved still a little bit further in the construction site. And he found yet a third worker, and he asked him, My good man, what what is it that you are doing? And this man looked at him, and he said, Well, I am helping Sir Christopher Wren to build St. Paul's Cathedral. And the moral of the story is that all three men gave... True answers. None of, them, none of them lied. And yet each answer was considerably, considerably different from the last answer. And the difference of those answers is perspective. The last, the third man had a perspective. The right one. He was not only just laying bricks or building a wall he understood that he was doing something much greater he was building St. Paul's Cathedral and now I'm not saying that St. Paul's Cathedral is this uh, great or non-great thing but often our answers to questions are tainted by our point of view our perspective on them And our text today contains a question, perhaps the most important question that any person in this world can ask or can reply to. The question is in verse 10, as Jesus comes into the city and the whole multitude that is there to attend the feast of Passover is moved, stirred. Some of them were asking, who is this? Who is this? that So much fuss is being made of. Who is this? The whole city was moved. And this is the most important question in life. This is the most important question in eternity. Your eternal state hinges on the answer that you give to this question doesn't it who is Jesus to you who is Jesus to you who is Christ to you do you know him not just of hearing uh, what other people have said about him but do you know who Christ is do you know something of his person personally something of his work in your life You see, the great sadness of this passage, and that's what we will be considering uh, as we uh, meditate on these words, is that here's a crowd that was moved, stirred, that was uh, bothered. Something happened. Something was happening. There was a commotion, but yet they were unchanged. There are many people. There are many people in our own day. That get stirred by the message. One week they hear a very. Uh, pointed message. And they get stirred. But yet no change ever happens. And it is a sad. Truth. That many people get stirred. Moved. And yet they remain unchanged. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem it was the last week before his crucifixion before he was glorified to use his own words before he came to the, up to that mount of Golgotha to accomplish that work for which he was sent into this world and it was the coming to the feast of Passover he had performed miracles up until now he had been Busy showcasing his authority. Two blind men were just received sight. It wasn't too long before this, uh, this episode that the Lord Jesus walked up to the, th- the tomb where Lazarus laid. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he rose. And he was resurrected. All these things were still playing in the minds of those attending the feast in Jerusalem. Most of them have heard about this man who was going up and down Galilee. This man that was traveling through Judea, speaking great things, doing great deeds. How many were they? In God's providence, and I do believe that this is God's providence, that the Lord comes to the to to the, to the to the last week before He comes up the cross to the cross. In the Lord's providence, He comes into the city, the week before Passover, the busiest time in that city's uh, yearly schedule. How many were they? The city was fairly large in, in Jesus' day. But add to that all the pilgrims coming, out, coming from all the regions around the, the Mediterranean. And you have multitudes and multitudes. Just for a little bit of perspective, uh, about 10 years later, a census was taken just after the Feast of Passover and they were trying to calculate how many lambs were slaughtered during the Feast of Passover, 10 years after the events recorded for us here. And it is said that 260,000 lambs were slain on that week. And it's not too, and this is a matter of historical record, it's not too hard to calculate or a ballpark figure of how many people were in the city in that day. It is said that a lamb would be sufficient uh, for 10 people. That you could, For every 10 people, you would slay a lamb. And yes, there are certainly those that were a smaller group, a smaller number. Perhaps those that were four or five, and yet they slayed the, a lamb for for the four or five of them. But if you take the 10, it's 2.6 million people. Now, certainly, well, almost assuredly, there wasn't. 2.6 million people in Jerusalem 10 years after these events. But it's not too hard to think in the realm of the hundreds of thousands of people coming into the city. And as they come into the city, perhaps a half a million, perhaps a million people traveling by foot, they start to see this commotion. The crowds will get excited The leaders get upset in Luke 19, verse 39. It is said that some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This event is recorded for us in the four Gospels. And in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees were fed up. They were upset with this. And the people were asking the right question, weren't they? They were asking the right question. Who is this? Sadly, like those first two men in the illustration uh, that I gave in the beginning, they gave an inadequate answer. However truthful, however correct, yes, Jesus is a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. However truthful that answer is, it is a wholly inadequate answer. It is flawed because it lacks depth. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he is more than just a prophet. At one time, Jesus was at the mountaintop and he asked Peter, James and John. He asked them, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, perhaps Peter. He said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Another others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. The average person in Jesus' day, as he heard of what Jesus was doing and saying, he would assume that Jesus was a prophet. Just a prophet. And Jesus asked, well, what about you? He asks the disciples, Peter, James, and John, what about you? Who do you say That I am. And Peter, again, taking the lead. Inspired by God, he says, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. What does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because what you have said is not revealed to you by flesh and blood. But he was my father. What a commendation there. What a commendation that should Allow us to understand what is happening here. The confession of Peter was not just a confession that was wrought out of the mind, because he analyzed all the different aspects of of who uh, Christ is, of who the Jesus is that is standing in front of him, and he uh, joined two and two together, and he went, "Well, you're the you're you're the Son of God. You're the living uh, you're you're you're." The the Messiah, you're the Christ, the very Son of God. No, Jesus says, what you just said is an answer of faith. And that answer of faith is a sign that something has changed. You wouldn't be able to say that unless the Spirit, unless the Father has given it uh, to you to say. And that is the great hinge who do you say that Christ is? To be precise, the crowds called Jesus the prophet from Nazareth. He is the prophet from that town. Maybe in a, in a slightly disparaging way, Nazareth was not really a town that you would uh, write home about. That you would say, oh, I'm, I'm from London. And, and perhaps people will respect you more. Perhaps not. But you, in, in Jesus' day, if you said, I'm from Nazareth, no one would, would go, wow, from Nazareth. What a great city. What a great village you're from. Perhaps it is said in a, in a slightly disparaging way. But it is not surprising that the crowds thought Jesus to be a great man, but little more than that. Then and now, it's the same question that is asked and then and now it's basically the same answer that is given some don't like him like the Pharisees in our days some say well yeah he was he was a great man great moral teacher he's up there with the with the great philosophers and the great uh, influences uh, of the world no more than that no more than that then and now People seem to be in the dark. They honor Jesus superficially, outwardly, with, with just a, a, a nod and a, and a tip of the hat. But there is little change. There is a stirring, there is a moving, there is a, 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 perhaps a, a, an impact, but that impact goes very shallow. It's just superficial. The end of this episode, this recorded episode for us, is uh, seemingly anticlimactic. Jesus comes in and he, he into the city, and he goes into the temple of God. But I'll I'll speak a little bit more about this in a moment. He comes into the city as a humble king. A king who came to serve and not to be served. Riding on a donkey. And the sad reality is that this... These crowds misguided praise leads them to death. As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem... This is recorded for us in Luke 19. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem... In verse 41 to 44, or after. uh, It says, now, as he drew near, he saw the city. He saw the city, and he wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially in your day, the things that make for, you, for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, they thought they were in the presence of a great man, but little more, perhaps no more than that. They wanted a king. They wanted a, a, a warrior to fight for them. But it was all misguided enthusiasm. They wanted a king after their own making. They wanted Jesus to be what they wanted him to be. So much so that the same voices that were here in this, uh, in this, uh, at this time crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One week later, are crying, crucify him. We don't want anything to do with him. Give us Barabbas. We'd rather have Barabbas. Then this Jesus, May His blood be upon our heads. The same people here that were so enthusiastic about Jesus as He was coming in, they turned on him. They turned against him, because they wanted one that would come to fight their fights. Their battles. They wanted one would come and, and do what they wanted. What he, they wanted him to do. They wanted someone to come and release them and save them, not from their sins, not from their 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 wickedness. They wanted someone to come and save them from the Romans. And when it became clear that this Jesus is coming, not riding on a big white stallion with, with a sword in his hands and with, a, with an army behind him, when it became clear to them that Jesus, this blessed is he who comes, that they, that they were so enthusiastic about, is actually coming on a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy. Not followed by, by great armies, but followed by poor people and oppressed people. When they realized that, they wanted nothing to do with him. They rejected him. They were confident and misguided at the same time. They were excited that a prophet had arrived. They were excited that, a son of, that, that someone from the lineage of David was coming into the city. They were excited that the king of Israel had come. But the king of Israel is not the kind of king that they were seeking. Instead of coming in and overthrowing the Roman legions and slaying them with their sword. What, does, what is the first act of Jesus as he comes into the, to the city of Jerusalem? He goes in to the temple. He goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He tosses out the merchants that were buying and selling. They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted one who would come in with great power and overthrow Rome. He was coming directly uh, to to Jerusalem. They wanted a sword in his hands. They wanted wanted to see him slay the, the Romans. What does he do? He comes in to the temple and he takes care of the sin that was in the temple oh do, do not miss the significance of this event what is it that the Jews celebrate at the Passover the release the exodus the, the release from the oppression of, of, of the Egyptians oh so they wanted to be released from the captivity now of the, Roman, of the Romans over them So when they cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, deliver now, they want not if, not to be delivered from their sins. They want a physical kingdom. They want earthly deliverance. That's why Jesus comes in and he makes a whip and cleans up their dirty house. Instead of knocking off Rome, he comes in and wipes the temple. Jesus is saying to them and he's saying to us, I'm not the kind of king that you think. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I am here to overthrow the sinfulness of your heart. The sinfulness uh, of of your wickedness. Your wickedness. Your problem is not with Rome. Your problem is with God because of your sin. And they would have none of it. They didn't want the Jesus that the Bible speaks of. They didn't want this Jesus that comes and offers deliverance from the greatest ill of mankind. Because that's what Jesus came to do. You ask me, who is Jesus? Who is this? Using the words of the, of the, of the multitude, who is this? I'll tell you who he is. He is the king of kings, Yes. But he comes to deal not with the oppressing regimes that there are out there. He comes to take care of the oppression of sin in our souls. He comes to make peace between God and men and women. And how does he do that? Well, that's precisely what he was doing at this time. He was going to the cross. Jesus came as a man to bear the curse of his people. The cross is this cross that he's going to, that he set his eye upon, that he knows it, it, it needs to come. This cross is the greatest proof of God's love, but it's the greatest proof that God takes sin seriously as well. It's the greatest proof of God's hatred for sin. And God's love for his people. God demonstrates his love. Paul, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8. His own love towards us. In that we were, uh, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. But it also demonstrates. That as the sin. Our sin was laying upon the son. There on that cross. He did not spare his own son. Romans eight thirty two. God cannot excuse sin. And that is the great message of the cross. He takes the curse. You take the blessings. The whole Bible, the whole New Old Testament is, a, is a, a, a collection of curses and blessings to those who are righteous, to, go, to those who are in good standing with God. All blessings are coming. Land, land, Peace, prosperity, all the blessings. But if you're a sinner, if you're wicked, curses. What happens on that cross, what happens a week after this event, what Jesus came to do, and that's why he is walking into Jerusalem, witnessed by all of these, uh, by this whole multitude, so that no mouth would say that they didn't see it coming. What is happening on that cross is exactly the reversing of the curse. The curse that we were under. The curse that we were meant to suffer. Jesus took it upon himself on that cross. And the blessings that we, he was meant to enjoy. The blessings that is life of obedience. That is communion. Eternal. Perfect. Untainted. Communion with the Father. Uh, deserved. Are all ours. He took it all. Imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment what it means to be under the just wrath of God. Oh, horrible thing to to fall in the hands of the living God. All is wrath coming towards you. His just, holy, perfect wrath in one moment. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter anything else, you have no hope. It's like a dam 10,000 feet high and 10,000 thousand feet in width broken and all that water rushing towards you. Do you think you're going to be able to outrun it? Do you think you're going to be able to to swim uh, uh, through it? You're as good as dead even though the dam hasn't hit you yet. The water from that dam hasn't hit you yet. There is no hope. You're not fast enough to outrun you're going to be crushed, every one of you who is under the, the wrath of God. What Christ came to do is just before the, the wrath reaches you, it disappears. He takes it all upon that cross. Not even one drop of that water touches you. Not one drop. Is left for you. He took it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. What is my sin, not the sin, but left a crimson stain and he washed it as white as snow. So who is Christ? He is the one who displays the love and the justice of God in one single singular way he is the display of god's perfection he is the display of his un- uh, his purposes he is the display of god's glory it is in christ that death is destroyed it is in christ that sin is crushed and conquered it is in in christ that rebels are reconciled to god saints are sanctified and heaven is opened He is the savior of mankind, of those who come to him, who is Christ. He is the reconciler. He is the redeemer. He is the mediator between man and God. He is the advocate. Yes, he is a prophet, but he is much more than a prophet. He is the priest that instead of offering uh, lambs year upon year he offered once and for all his own precious blood he is the king of kings he is the bridegroom he is the the physician he is all in all yes he is uh, not just a prophet he is a prophet priest and king and his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom it is eternal Oh, that we would all know him more, that we would see the, the 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 glory of his person, the riches of his grace, the perfection of his character. All of us. That we wouldn't just be stirred and moved. That we wouldn't just be have this emotional response when we hear the gospel. But that the Lord would indeed move our hearts. What we see in this passage is Jesus as the king coming to the holy city of Jerusalem. Not to, in, to install an earthly kingdom. But as he goes up to that cross. As a crown of thorns is put upon his head. is the king being crowned weak and lowly. It is the kingdom of heaven being ushered forth. He does not come in a big white stallion with a sword in his hand. He comes in a donkey. But there is one day, and I'll finish by saying this. There is one day that this meek and lowly king coming on a donkey will indeed come riding on a horse with a sword in his mouth. But that is not this day. But when that day comes, when the day that Christ comes in his second coming... There is no hope of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. He saves not by slaying his foes, but by dying for them. Isn't that the greatest overturning of expectations in the history of the world? Here's the king of kings coming. He has this, here's the king of Israel coming. And everyone's thinking that he's going to come and, and install a kingdom by, by slaying all the enemies. And, and he installs a kingdom by giving himself. By being slain himself. So I plead with you. Receive him as your king. As the Lord of history. As the savior of your soul. And he will indeed come and rule over your life. Amen.